Moby.co. This is the flagship pod, a weekly live podcast about the stock market, the economy, and the various market forces powering the world around you. As always, I'm your host, Peter Starr, bringing you this week more of a look towards 2023 than anything. Here at the very end of the second week of December, we're just kind of waiting on CPI data to drop next Tuesday, and it's been a very dry week in terms of news. So instead of looking back, we're going to take the information we have so far and look forward, because what we're gearing up for, either you're listening to this on Friday, you're listening to this on Monday, as we all kind of wait either next week or tomorrow for the most important CPI print of probably the whole year, as we begin to see some data showing us that inflation's letting up, some other data saying, no way, dude, inflation's here for a long time. So are we in for an extended downturn through the totality of 2023? Or can we see things kind of begin to pick pick up around maybe Q2 of 2023 as the macro environment improves? As always, trying to get me through all of that and trying to understand that complicated situation with our stock market, I am always joined by Justin Kramer, CEO, co-founder, and chief analyst here at Moby.co. Justin, man, what's good, dude? Like, how are you parsing this 2023 outlook we're building right now? Yeah, thanks for uh, a really good introduction so far, and I'm excited to to chat through, you know, as we're approaching the end of 2022, what 2023 is going to look like. Uh, there's, you know, I think for the first time in really a decade, we're going into a year that we're completely uh, not unexpected, but, you know, no one really thought that 2023 was going to potentially not be this rally. A lot of investors thought 2022 would be short-lived ended up being the entire year. Uh, And so we're going into a new year for the first time in a decade, like I said, where, you know, there's uncertainty, where the market is not just going up like it's really been doing over the last 10 years. Uh, We've seen a really strong pullback in the Dow and the S&P and the NASDAQ. So there's there's a lot to unpack. Next week is going, or next year rather, is going to be very, very telling. And so today, definitely want to discuss through our outlook when we think markets will bottom, why they'll bottom, what stocks should do well, um, how the economy will do in 2023. So there's a there's a lot to discuss. I'm excited to get through it. Exactly. And the thing to keep in mind, too, is it's, we're going to look at it sector by sector as well, because even through this downturn, we've seen some pretty solid results, you know, a lot of volatile results, but solid ones. Like, I'm really excited about pharma. I'm excited about industrials. Um, but our goal is always to find those kinds of defensive sectors that are still going to give us outsized growth once we see a, the bottom happen and growth stocks begin to take back over. So that's what we're going to be looking at and making sure that we're not just being fully defensive, but finding those picks that can still outperform in an improved macro environment. Because Getting to that macro environment. So, Justin, we've seen a lot of mixed signals from labor in the past few weeks. The labor market is both stronger and weaker than it should be. Today was kind of one of a bigger tell for us because we just saw wholesale prices come in uh, month over month up 0.3% when the market was expecting 0.2%. Some wild things in there, Justin. Um, Vegetable prices are up 38%, contributing to a 0.3% rise in overall food costs, which completely offset a 3% decrease in energy uh, prices. Um, This is kind of playing out exactly as as we thought we would, like energy makes food more expensive, food gets more expensive, keeps inflation going once energy gets under control, or is this kind of like a more short-lived thing since we're you know in winter and all that yeah it's uh it's a very interesting point or or you know question rather is this going to be short-lived is it going to persist through 2023 i mean in the beginning of your kind of introduction you talked about sector by sector you know i think what's a really interesting trend this year is we've seen a breakout uh really of markets 
this year relative to the last 10 years. So if you break down the S&P, you know, 500 by sector, it looks really different from a return perspective um, than the the returns of the, the overall index. Um, so for example, this year, um, the S&P 500 obviously <laughs> has not had the best year to, to say the least. But energy industrials have done really, really well, which has been very interesting. Uh, for example, energy is up fifty percent this year. Healthcare is up another fifty percent, five percent rather. Um, while tech is down, you know, almost twenty five percent. Real estate's down. Consumer discretionary is down. Communication services is down. So, in twenty twenty three, this trend is going to continue. The this kind of bifurcation between what sectors do well and what sectors don't do well, and a lot of it's going to be dictated based on where the market is and where the economy is. And so the biggest trends we're looking at, obviously, it's been a, a long discussion is is on rates. So you, you talked about wholesale inflation. And I think the biggest thing is, okay, yeah, maybe it was up 0.3 versus 0.2. Does that really matter? You know, I think the numbers are less significant. And what's more significant is that it still hasn't peaked yet. Um, things are still increasing and rates have been increasing like at an extreme pace over the last year, um, which is which is scary. I mean, when you raise rates this much, the economy should slow down. Things should stop getting less expensive. And they haven't. And, you know, not to dive into it too much. But the reason that hasn't happened, and we've talked about it before uh, on our site a lot, is because. When you raise rates, the world is so heavily financed by debt that when debt becomes more expensive, just goods become more expensive overall and core goods become more expensive. So for example, if food becomes more expensive, people aren't going to stop eating. You know, Maybe they stop shopping at Whole Foods and go to a local market instead, but they still need to eat food. And when you have the food industry financed by debt, you have the energy industries financed by debt, you have all these industries that are so heavily financed by debt, Things that are discretionary, spending can slow down, but things that aren't discretionary are core staples. You know, it's really hard to to stop eating, you know, your bread, your milk, your cheese, uh, unless there's a severe recession where you're just struggling to to get money in the door. And that's been really the the massive fear going into 2023 is that are we going to raise rates to the point where there's this massive, massive recession? Because rates have been increasing so much. Spending hasn't slowed down. Things are still really expensive. Um, so are we going to hit this inflection point in 2023 where all of a sudden, you know, rates are so high, everyone loses their jobs, companies can't perform anymore because it's too expensive to operate and just end up falling into this massive hole. So that's really been the fear going into 2023. From what we've seen so far, it's definitely not off the table. Um, if If the Fed continues to raise rates at this pace, there is a good chance we have a harder landing than a soft landing. Um, although what, what we're seeing so far is that uh, specifically that it should be a little bit better than we think people anticipate. Um, I think right now the, the question is not, is the Fed going to continue raising rates? It's okay, now the Fed has shown that it will raise rates, but at a decreasing rate. So the real question next becomes, when will they peak and when will they ultimately start decreasing rates? And does that come before some sort of massive pullback in the economy? And those are the core, core things as investors we need to be watching out for that will overtake pretty much any you know, company-specific news if we're in this massive recession. So if I'm looking for the outlook for 2023, you know, the number one thing we're looking for is that. And then past that, 
you know, when will the Fed, again, start decreasing rates? Right now, we're thinking it should be in around, you know, Q2, Q3, they start decreasing. Um, the markets have priced that in pretty much to this point. Uh, so if we have a good indication that that will actually start happening before some sort of massive pullback in the economy, there's no reason that, you know, come end of Q1, early Q2, we're not starting to look at a, a pretty strong rally, even if the economy is in a shaky place, as long as the, the outlook's good and, and the Fed is being accommodative. So those are the big things, and we can dive into, you know, sub-bullet points beneath beneath the surface of that, but those are the most important things to watch for and ultimately will affect every single sector. And I think the big thing to really lock in on there is too, is that the moment where we understand that outlook is coming really quick. Like we're going to both have a Fed meeting and a CPI print uh, this month. Specifically, the big thing everyone's watching out for, the reason you're seeing all this kind of shakiness, caginess, whatever, is that the CPI print is again on Tuesday. Justin, like, are, are we looking at the potential for, you know, a big downturn since we saw like, energy prices not increased the, at the rate we thought they were going to. We did see food prices go up a lot, but that's not as big of a contributor. And services costs are obviously going up as well. Are we looking at a pretty likely lowered CPI print? And if we see that, if the CPI is coming out finally colder than anticipated, as opposed to always being a little bit too hot for the past six months, um, is that a good reason to really be, um, what is the level we think we need to be at in order to have more of a positive outlook once we see the CPI print on Tuesday? So yeah, to your point, the CPI print is going to be extremely telling based on the you know the data and information we have so far. I would anticipate uh, that it's going to be moving in a solid direction, you know. But I don't think we're going to be at a point where it's decreasing yet. I think the more important thing to watch is how the Fed reacts to it, and from what we've seen so far with Jerome Powell and recent conferences, they've been signaling that if it's not in December, you know, it's definitely maybe at the next meeting in January that they're going to start decreasing the rate at which they increase interest rates. So it's been 75 basis points for the last few meetings. If we can get down to the point where it's 50 basis points, even 25 basis points, you know, a lot of that has been priced in at this point. I think investors see that and feel that's coming. So as long as they do that, I don't think the markets will react as, as sharply as you may think they will. Um, but this is, again, just on trend. So the number one thing we'd be watching post CPI print and when we get a Fed announcement is, okay, inflation potentially is you know starting to level off, but how is the Fed thinking about this? They've signaled that they're going to start decreasing. Have they signaled when they're going to start you know um, start leveling off and, and if anything start decreasing rates? I think those are the things we need to be watching. It's more going to be their forecasting than what they do in the immediate term. Uh, based off that forecasting, that's going to be, you know, the massive opportunity uh, for investors. And if they come out and tell us, you know, that um, they were going to start decreasing interest rates in Q1, you know, any sort of signal that rates are going to be decreasing or at least stop increasing, which would be new as an investor. If you're listening to this right now and you hear that, you know, I'm, I'm not saying <laughs> empty the bank account by any means. But that is going to be a massive, massive bull signal. And so what you need to pay attention to is more what's coming next, not what is the Fed going to be doing come December, unless, you know, they decide, hey, we're, we're barely scratching the surface here. We need to revert what we've been saying and go 75 basis points again. Then, you know, we're in a little bit of trouble. But as long as they do, you know, what I'm anticipating to be a 50 basis raise, and then they say, hey, come end, end of Q1 or a few more successive quarters, then we can stop increasing interest rates. 
that's going to be, you know, that bull sentiment that we need to push higher. So if it's not this meeting, maybe it's the next, maybe it's the next one after that. That's what you need to be watching for. Precisely. The main thing we're like looking into, right, is the idea that um, while the CPI is super important, the main thing is the FOMC meeting that happens literally the next day. At least we'll be getting press conferences right after that. So this is kind of a big one-two punch. And then the next big one, of course, coming in January. Because the other thing is, too, we didn't see these big reductions in energy prices until this month when we had a very bizarro world occurrence. I mean, I really don't know what's happening with oil right now either. I'll get to that in just a second. But the main thing is it's not just the CPI. It's how the market anticipates the Fed react to that CPI audience. So keep moving forward with that. Again, what we'd love to see is a much cooler CPI. It might not be quite there yet. We will probably see a lot of really cool stuff. Um, gotcha. Uh, we should be getting some very interesting stuff in January as well. So again, like the most annoying thing about the market is you can't talk about it week over week. You have to talk it like six months by six months. So main thing audience is uh, looking at that. But the, ne the next up thing, Justin, as I was alluding to, I really want to hear more about oil prices because I don't understand what's happening. We had a uh, the EU impose a pipe price cap on Russian oil and oil prices went down despite the fact that supply should be limited while OPEC is still limiting prices. Dude, what is going on? Like, why is oil still crashing out? Am I missing something here? Like, that doesn't really follow my understanding of supply and demand right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right now, oil prices and gas prices for people are, are very... Are, is very interesting, especially depending on where you live. Um, what we saw over the summer, pretty much regardless, was that prices were increasing pretty substantially. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Prices were increasing pretty substantially. We had gas in some parts of the country going over 5 $6 a gallon. And then internationally, it's been you know decently expensive as well. And outside of gas for, for natural gas and other energy uh, inputs has, has been expensive as well. And so what we're seeing here in the U.S. is a combination of two things primarily. One, the U.S. has opened up its strategic reserves um, in order to supply our country with more oil, which has brought down prices significantly. And then the second factor is that we're starting to import from countries that we swore we never would. One of those is Venezuela, uh, in order to mitigate a lot of the supply issues that we've seen with the limitation of oil now coming out of Russia. So those two things alone, at least in the U.S., has helped bring down energy prices significantly. You know, in Europe, especially as things start getting colder there and people spend more money on trying to heat themselves in their homes. Unfortunately, in Europe, it's it's not as significant. But here in the U.S., that is why it's decreasing pretty substantially. It'll be interesting to see, you know, how this oversupply works, especially with OPEC trying to also artificially uh, limit supply and ultimately increase prices. You know, long story short, it, it's not going to be super sustainable. Um, the refineries here in the U.S. are operating basically at max capacity. It takes years and years and years to build new refineries. There hasn't really been any new refineries built in the last 80, 90 years. Uh, sorry, since the 80s and 90s. Um, and like we talked about before coming full circle, if you want to build new refineries, that is going to be heavily financed by debt. Um, and debt obviously is higher now. So the cost of building them are going to be higher. It's going to take years in the making. And so by the time that can also regulate oil supply, it'll basically be a, a non-issue at that point. So long story short, you know, just because energy prices are decreasing right now doesn't mean that will continue to be the case, but that is, is what's happening. And it's basically just a, a massive geopolitical mess right now.
So uh, is this like just um, U.S. energy policy just kicking ass or is it just, you know, we're just taking advantage of some short term volatility and mayhem right now? Do you see this continuing or I mean, we were talking just two weeks ago about folks placing bets on what, like one hundred and fifty to two hundred dollar barrels and uh, barrels of oil. Right. So this is kind of a wild, wild divergence, seeing it, in, you know, more in the 70s range, go almost hitting 60, almost hitting the 60s at this point. Um, is this just temporary or do we can we with this geopolitical mess, can we keep taking advantage? of this and keep bringing more refineries online and just keep just doubling down on Venezuela politics be damned and just you know keep oil prices down even in this really really insane energy environment I mean we were talking about things exploding this winter and we've managed to keep them relatively under control right yeah I mean so right now there's just an oversupply in the US so as I was alluding to like the refineries have really been kind of pushed to what I'll call maximum capacity in order to anticipate a lot of this, you know, demand and supply issue we're seeing internationally. And it's getting to the point now, similar to what we saw a few years ago, where they've created so much oil and we have so much oil in our strategic reserves that there's not really a, a ton of places to store it. And the demand just hasn't met the oversupply that we've created kind of artificially domestically here in the US. And that's why we've seen this drop down. So what will likely happen is we'll probably start to get a slowdown in the amount of oil that's actually produced, which will ultimately, you know, bump prices up again come, you know, at some point in 2023. Predicting to your point oil prices on a day-to-day -day basis is is significantly challenging. But, you know, as we're approaching $60 a barrel, as there's more geopolitical issues across the world, you know, I would be very hard pressed to, uh, to be surprised that if it keeps sliding significantly further over the course of 2023, you know, I think we're going to reach a bottom uh, relatively, you know, soon within the next few months, if not quarters. Which is solid. And just, you know, an interesting kind of reflection of the issues we had in 2020. Audience, you may remember back in the day when oil prices almost were negative because it would cost way much more money to store our insane oversupply of oil back when the entire market shut down. So it's good to see that we increased capacity for storage and then um, managed to weather this weird geopolitical bit where, you know, a lot of our oil supply is tied up in, a na in one of our biggest oil producing nations, you know, going to war for basically no reason as we sort of watch that kind of grind out as well still. Um, but getting into this then too, we're going to do kind of a hard shift here, Justin, as we begin thinking about what the rest of 2023 is going to look like. And that's also thinking about the beginning of 2023. Um, the first part of earnings season for Q1 of every year is always talking about which retailers are the big winners and the big losers. And I think one thing that the, our audience is kind of anticipating is a Santa rally this year, but it kind of looks like we're not going to see that. Instead, we're looking at a situation where retail is really bifurcating, right? It's like what you said before. We're finally reaching this capacity where the U.S. consumers aren't buying as much. You're seeing people shift from going to Whole Foods to going to Walmart. Walmart is performing really well as a retailer right now. Target is getting absolutely hammered. One of our old favorites, Lululemon, is now down 30% at time of recording as they just get hammered by just a lot of macro pressures. As we look to retail too, Justin, which should be like a big winner here in Q4 and into Q1, like are there any kind of pressures we can watch to make sure we're making the best kinds of investment decisions as like we watch the likes of Walmart and Dick's outperform while folks like Target and Lululemon get left behind? Yeah, uh, there's a, there's really a, a lot we can watch for. And and to your point, this has just been the the general theme that we've been saying now is kind of, again, whether it's sector specific or company specific, this bifurcation between companies that do well and companies that don't well do well and sectors that do well and sectors that don't do well. 
So exactly to your point, you know, Dick's Lululemon versus Nike, Macy's, you know, I'm just naming a, a bunch of big, big box retailers. But effectively, the biggest things we need to watch for is the same things we're watching for in oil, which is an oversupply, a buildup of uh, inventory, a slowdown of demand, and just constantly balancing this, you know, supply versus demand. And that's what's interesting with physical goods is you have to create them, ship them, and then ultimately stock them. So there's always real like a lag of inventory relative to real-time demand. And so what we've seen with Target, we've seen with Walmart, we've seen with other like large kind of retailers is that they there was such a large demand in 2021 and into 2022 that these, especially with stunted supply chains, these companies like we're doing whatever it took to, to meet demand. And then going forward, as soon as supply chains started getting fixed, they just ended up over-ordering a ton, thinking that demand was ultimately going to be sustained. And that's that's really been how COVID continues to kind of mess everything up is we see this massive, massive dip uh, you know, in GDP, in growth as the world shuts down. And so what does the Fed and the US economy do? It overreacts. It jacks down interest rates like crazy. It pumps money into the economy uh, as it's scared and, and reacts quickly. And so what happens? You know, the market starts spiking like crazy. The economy spikes. Um, and we see this, this gross kind of overcorrection relative to what was happening. And now we're starting to see it the other way. Uh, all, you know, companies like these, these retailers saw this massive spike and again, overreacted and just did whatever it took in order to meet demand. And now that demand, you know, is not sustainable in the way that it was, and it's starting to crash back the other way. Now there's an oversupply. And so we see it in oil, we see it in energy, we're seeing it in retail now. And it's going to ultimately, it's going to take time to level off and get back to that place where there's normalized, predictable growth. And that's the last few years. I mean, if we can characterize it as anything, it's just gross, you know, overreactions to, to pretty quick macro events. Um, so for retailers specifically, we need to look at companies who are who are doing it properly. And, you know, you mentioned one, Dick's. I think they're doing a great job. They didn't overreact. They they forecasted really well, didn't, you know, spend a ton of money on on uh, raw materials and and goods and didn't end up stocking up a ton of their warehouses. And so they're, they weren't oversupplied. And then ultimately, you know, they've been able to kind of meet demand nicely. Um, so when you look at, you know, the retail sector in general, it's it's obviously done pretty poorly this year. But when you look at Dix in particular, you know, up 5% this year, not great in isolation. Uh, but when you start looking at it in context relative to the overall retail industry with most names down 10, 20, 30, 40%, Dix has held up fairly well in a really bad macro environment. So going forward, I think Dix is really, really positioned to do well in 2023. And we start seeing the rebound and strong growth in the economy. Um, this is again, just an example of a company that's done well and what we should be looking for in other retail-based companies who are managing their inventory correctly. Exactly. The main thing is understanding excess inventory too, understanding what to do with it, how to get rid of it and whatever. Dix did a really good job with a whole clearance line going, going, gone to sort of be a get rid of and be sort of like optimize where excess inventory went. Whereas the likes of Lululemon are sitting on $1.7 billion of unsold merchandise, which is up 85% year over year. And it's just, well, with a lot of these DTC retailers, like the thing that was making them really strong pre-pandemic was they didn't have all the costs associated with stores. So, and it was also the astonishing machine that was Facebook ads for the longest time, right? Like you could, you could, 
the amount you could sell, the amount you could target, the amount of just product you could move off of Facebook ads alone was absolutely astonishing. And now with targeting kind of gone and Facebook not being super... I mean, Facebook was really good for this particular Black Friday, and actually TikTok was a little bit worse, but we can get into that a little bit later. Um, what we saw was people just not being able to sell as well, and folks who invested in having these stores can, that they can just use as warehouses is a big win. Another huge example of this is Best Buy. So again, it's just a matter of moving inventory around, getting it to the right customer in the quickest amount of time at the lowest amount of cost. And these stores as warehouses models is working really well. Of course, Lululemon does have storefronts, but not nearly as many and not nearly as large as we roll through the back half here. So inventory management has come down to, again, the kind of the resurgence of these big box stores who went had to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Amazon and lose out. And now that Amazon's in a weaker position, they're coming back a little bit so it's a really awesome you know pivot to see with stores like walmart best buy and dicks just coming back making their inventory work and making sure it works digitally as well i could talk about this all day but let's get nerding out a little bit too much just as we kind of get through the back half here and as we begin to understand just it's going to be a company company basis who wins in these very bizarre economic circumstances because that's what it really is the 20 2008 downturn was just one giant credit crunch like there just was no money Everything dried up. Everyone got affected in the same way. But this bizarro world of a recession, there's a lot of like Swiss cheese holes you can find your way to weave through and make good things happen and make sure you win throughout it. As we roll through to 2023 again, um, if this is an extended downturn, what other what other kind of factors are going to rise up and sort of like hamstring companies as they move through and try to make sure they maintain profitability and grow well during this? And are there any sectors that are going to still outperform if we are in this extended downturn? So a lot of like what we're going to be seeing, you know, what's called first quarter, if not first half of 2022 is companies that are setting themselves up for success over the long run. Um, so a lot of the, the you know, what we'll call um, ultimately this rebound in the market is going to be very macro based. And so what companies need to be doing now is setting themselves up uh, again to do well in the long run. So this is an example. We This is one of many companies that we like, but it just is, paints a good example of the types of companies that we're looking at. And so we're coming out with a report very soon on Tesla. Uh, Tesla, for example, has lost, I think, almost half a trillion dollars in market cap this year, which is insane. And when you look at the company, you know, why is this happening? We see, yes, we see a macro slowdown in the demand for electric vehicles. We see other competitors starting to enter the marketplace. Um, we're seeing, I mean, just the, the drama with Elon and Twitter, of course. Um, you know, it's also impossible to go through a podcast without talking about that. Um, but there's, you know, there's a lot of factors going on. And, you know, Tesla is not in isolation from the rest of the EV industry was getting killed. But are they, are they going to rebound in 2023? You know, tough to say when that rebound comes, but will they rebound strong over the next several years? Without a doubt, yes. And, and so when we look at these companies, what are they doing well? Again, managing supply chain, managing inventory is more important than ever. And in Tesla's case, they have a very unique way they're doing it. And it's through this ability of like vertically integrating. They've talked about getting their own lithium instead of having to rely on third-party mining companies or cobalt lithium, other raw materials needed for the batteries of electric vehicles, uh, which is very interesting. They also supply or build a lot of their uh, their supply chain in-house, whereas a lot of companies source it to third parties, which add on fees uh, and make it more expensive for other users, which is really important. So these are these are the things we need to watch for. That's one example. Um, they're also what I think Tesla is doing well as as well is they're also 
continuing to innovate while pushing down prices, whereas other companies are not able to, to do that right now. And so Tesla, again, is setting themselves up for future success once the demand of electric vehicles continues to go back on its track. They're the only company that is profitable before uh, tax credits and incentivization structures from foreign and U.S. governments. And so they continue to be significantly ahead of their competitors, and I think they'll rebound very nicely. But that's just one example of a company we like. But again, that is the general theme. They're hand Look for companies that are handling their inventory correctly, that are able to increase their margins by decreasing their costs, are still growing nicely from a revenue perspective, and are generating free cash flow and are innovating. I mean, we those are the, you know, no matter... It, it, some sectors differ, like energy, for example, or, or things that are more repeatable. But for companies that are growing, that's what we want to see. We want to see costs going down, margins going up, growth either being maintained or increasing, really good innovation, product moats, um, and just things that they can ultimately draw their technology and, again, like moats around. So, those, again, those are the things we want to watch for. Tesla is one good example and will be researched. We are re, uh, going to be blasting out shortly on the website uh, and via the app. But, again, those are just general themes to be looking for. And we we call it a lot more of these on the site. It's hard to discuss them all in a 30-minute episode. But that's the the general gist and the general theme to be watching out for. And that's really and that's really solid too. And uh, honestly, just kind of a shout out to our analysis team for, you know, finding good things to say about Tesla during this really just goofy period to be in sort of the Elon Musk extended universe. So a lot of work went into that post too, just finding, you know, the diamonds in the rough and seeing, you know, what's going to work and what's not going to work. But to sort of wrap up what you said, Justin, I think the most important thing to keep in mind, audience, is that, you know, it's like Faulkner said, the, the past isn't finished. It isn't even past, right? Like we're going to be dealing with the echoes of 2020 for a while. And the companies who win in sort of 2023 are going to be the ones who dealt with 2020 really well within the context of all of the you know consolidation issues we saw from 2014 to 2018 as well so we're just constantly revisiting all of the old trends all of the new trends all at once and it's always these echoes going back and forth as we find what tr what numbers work and what numbers don't and the main thing is keeping costs under control and increasing margins so really excited to see how this all plays out um, of course it, it, make sure you listen to this episode very quickly because all of our information goes out the window on Tuesday once we get clarity on the CPI and we have a solid indication of what direction the market is going to be going moving forward because it's going to be CPI, FOMC, back-to-back, -back, really wild middle of the of next week. So be sure to join us you know, next Friday and or the Monday following once we have that information and can discuss and have a much better sense of what's actually going to happen. So either way, audience, great place to end it here. Justin Kramer, CEO, co-founder, chief analyst here at Moby.co. Thank you so much for your perspective as always. Justin, man, any final thoughts from you before I go ahead and uh, read the credits? No, I think this is uh, really comprehensive. Uh, you know, a bulk of our listeners are, are definitely listening on the recorded version. Um, so whether you're listening now or on the recorded vision, you know, I would definitely just recommend going to, to our site to get all of our up-to-date information, joining the Discord. You know, we're here to answer one-on-one -on -one questions when we can. Uh, and ultimately, again, knowledge right now is, it feels funny saying this, but is more important than ever. You know, I think indexation, putting money in an ETF, great strategy, you know, for the last decade and is still a great strategy going forward. But if you really want to maximize your performance and returns, understanding what's going on is more important than ever, because we're going to really see over the next several years. And what we've seen in 2022 is this deviation from the index. And so there's an ability to outperform like there, there really hasn't been 
over the last several years. So that's the the biggest thing to watch for is stay on top of it. If it's not from us, I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be from us. There's other sources. We, we're just, we want people to be educated and we're happy if, you know, people are able to build their wealth. That's the number one goal we want here. Exactly. And that's the most important thing to keep in mind. More than ever, audience, on a company-by-company company basis, we are entering into the uh, semi-decade or full decade of winners and losers, like true winners and losers within industries. Like you're seeing the bifurcation happen in retail. You're seeing it happen a little bit in pharmaceuticals and in industrial as well. There are going to be so many different kind of hits that come as again we churn through all of the um flotsam and jetsam that came out of 2020 for a long time that it's going to be only the most agile companies can deal with it and only the companies who can find a way to minimize costs the best can deal with it as well and, and making sure that happens not at the expense of growth so it's going to be a wild time to be watching the markets and it's going to be absolutely an era of individual picks and sort of individually building your own portfolio so you know the main rule is stay the course don't be a forced seller and don't over invest in any particular industry if you don't fully understand it and make sure you're watching more granularly so I'm really excited to watch that. I'm really excited to do that with y'all audience. And as always, I'm really excited to lock that in with our analyst team here at Moby.co. Regardless, folks, it's a pretty solid place to end it. So just so you know, this podcast is produced, hosted, and voiced by me, Peter Starr. If you want to learn more about Moby.co's perspective, you can hit us up at hello at Moby.co, or you can visit Moby.co slash go and get a free trial and just see what our more in-depth analysis is as we sort of understand this industry company by company, industry by industry. Regardless, folks, feel free to join us over on Instagram and Twitter as well. But for now, that's a pretty solid place to end it. So as always, folks, I like to leave you with peace, love, and incremental gains. Everyone be well. Thank you so much.